You're listening to the Belmar Church Sermon Podcast. For more information about Belmar or to see our upcoming events, visit belmarchurch.com. If you have your Bibles this morning, I'd invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 9 in the New Testament, the book of Acts. There's a guy who you should not know about, but if you've ever heard his name, you've heard it because preachers like me like to use him as an illustration for guys you've never heard about. Edward Kimball was a guy who in the middle of the 1800s was a dry goods salesman. He was a believer in Jesus and he volunteered to teach a Sunday school class for young men. And uh, he had a guy named Dwight in his class. Dwight worked for his uncle at a shoe store and Edward Kimball became very concerned about this young man's uh, salvation. And so he went to visit him where he worked. And according to Edward's testimony, he stood outside for a few minutes of that shoe store, kind of mustering the courage to go in and talk to him about salvation. But he did. He went in, and in the back of that shoe store, he led Dwight to the Lord. And that person famously was Dwight L. Moody, who later founded Moody Chapel and Moody Bible Institute, who through him, uh, the great English pastor F.B. Meyer was, was saved and came to Christ. And you can trace down uh, great evangelists and pastors through the lineage of D.L. Moody and his training institution. And all of that began with the courage of Edward Kimball. And as I mentioned to you to start, you may have heard that story before. I have. It's actually a fairly common illustration, but only because preachers aren't original and they all share those same stories. And in Acts chapter 9, we're going to look at a guy who only appears in Scripture in this one story. And his name is Ananias. He's not even the most well-known Ananias in the book of Acts. Because I think the most well-known Ananias in the book of Acts was a guy who was married to a lady named Sapphira. They famously tried to deceive the Holy Spirit and lied to the church and God killed them. That's a different story. This Ananias, we don't even know if he was married, and if he was married, we don't know what his wife's name was. There's also in Scripture a guy by the name of Ananias who was the high priest. He was a guy of prominence. Ananias wasn't that either. But he did play a significant role in Scripture and in the life of this man named Saul. We talked last week in the first nine verses of chapter nine how Saul was an enemy of the followers of Jesus and how he was persecuting the church and on his way to Damascus, a light shines down, knocks him to the ground and he has an encounter with Jesus Christ. He comes up from that encounter blind and unable to see. He's led into the town of Damascus 
where he stays for three days and three nights, not, not eating or drinking, the Bible says. And that's where we left him last week. Now there was a certain disciple, Acts 9 and verse 10, at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. God called him by name. And he said, here I am, Lord. And so the Lord said to him, arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying, and in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. God comes to Ananias in a vision, and he gives him a very detailed assignment. He gives him an address. He says, you need to go to Straight Street. That's the name of the street, a, a street called Straight. Care to venture a guess what that street was like? I don't know. I'm just guessing. Probably not, right? <laughs> the way, you know, the way, anyway. No cul-de-sacs there. I don't know. Said, so go to Straight Street. Go to Judas's house. And there is a guy named Saul, and I've told Saul that you're coming. And you need to go and lay your hands on him so he can receive his sight. Ananias says, Lord, I have heard from many about this man. How much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Now, it's interesting. The reputation of Saul had preceded him. Ananias said, I didn't just hear one person talk about him. I've heard a lot of people talk about Saul. And how much havoc, how much persecution, how much destruction followed him as he went and persecuted those who believed in Jesus in Jerusalem. And... He's showing up in Damascus, and we know he has letters from the high priest. We learned this in the first part of chapter 9, to arrest people that believe in, in Jesus. And you want me to go see this guy and restore his sight? Ananias is probably thinking, blind Saul is a good Saul. But the Lord said to him, go. For he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road uh, as you came has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. So when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. This is an interesting story, and then from this we are going to see the beginnings of the ministry of the Apostle Paul as God would change his name from Saul to Paul and use him in a, in a miraculous way. 
But I want us to stop and look at these few verses and take some, some lessons that I think we can take for ourselves this morning. And the first one is this. God uses oftentimes people that we would think to be maybe more obscure, maybe less usable. See, this, this isn't just an isolated incident, but we see this principle throughout Scripture. You remember when the nation of Israel wanted a king and they picked Saul because he was head and shoulders above the rest, but God rejected Saul. So he came to the prophet and he said, listen, you need to go down because I'm going to pick uh, for the next king one of Jesse's sons. So the prophet comes down and he finds this man, Jesse, and he says, one of your sons is the next king. And, and Jesse's excited and he brings in his firstborn. And, and, and Samuel says, no, not that one. And so Jesse goes, well, that's all right. I've got some other sons. And he brings in his other sons. And Samuel looks at those and says, no. And then Samuel has to say to Jesse, do you have any other sons? And Jesse's like, well, I mean the baby. He's out watching sheep. We don't have very high hopes for him. And Samuel says, well, none of these will do, and I'm not eating until we get this thing done. Bring him in. The Bible says that God looks on the heart, not on the outward appearance. And God chose David to be the next king. And God chose a guy who was trying to mind his own business in the city of Damascus named Ananias and said, you know what you're going to do? First of all, you're going to perform this great miracle. You're going to go lay hands on Saul and restore his sight. Not only that, but you're going to baptize him. You're going you're to be the first Christian contact that this man has with, with the family of believers. He's been in this house, he's been sitting here, not eating, not drinking, wondering what's going on, and you're going to come in and minister to him. And we never hear from Ananias again. He's, he's found one other time in Scripture, in Acts 22, but it's just Paul relating this same story, and he references Ananias. We don't know where Ananias went after that. We don't know what he did. He was just right here on our radar screen. But here's the thing. It's not about being famous. Now, I understand that's a kind of counterintuitive thing to how we live. Because we want to make sure we get a lot of likes, right? That, that people follow us and know us and that that we that, that that people know who we are. And you might be here and say, oh, well, that's not me, preacher. No, but we all want a little bit of recognition, don't we? I mean, we all want to maybe not be famous, but have a little bit of recognition for the people that we care about. But that's not what it's about with God. You know what God desires from you and from me? Faithfulness. 
faithfulness. Sticking with what he's called us to do. And I was thinking about that this week. I thought, why is God so, why, why is that so important to God? And then I thought, we serve a faithful God, don't we? See, back in the Old Testament, Adam and Eve fell into sin, and, and every man and woman after that was born in sin. And so God promised a Messiah, but it seemed like it was taken forever for that Messiah to come, but God was faithful. And he sent Jesus Christ. And Jesus came and, he, and he, he died for us, he lived for us as a model, and he rose again so that we could have forgiveness of the wrong things that we've done, so that we could have eternal life. And then when Jesus ascended back into heaven, he said that he would come again. But it seems like it's taking forever, doesn't it? But why? Why do we still look for the return of Christ? Why do we still believe that? Because God is a faithful God. He says to us over and over, I'm not slack concerning my promises. I don't say one thing and do another. I am faithful. I will always do what I said. And so he Ask of us faithfulness. Let a man so consider us, 1 Corinthians 4, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. You know who wrote this passage of Scripture? This letter to the church at Corinth? Paul. Originally Saul. And he said this in verse 2, Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. A steward is a manager of something. And the requirement for that is faithfulness. Think about, think about a manager at a store or a business. They're a person who's in charge with the authority of the owner. And the best thing that a manager can do is to carry out the vision of the owner while the owner isn't there. I used to live in Texas, and uh, my next-door neighbor was a family originally from Italy. And they ran the Italian restaurant in town. They would grow some of the herbs and spices in their backyard. And, and uh, the, one of the sons was one of the cooks. One of the sons was a waiter. Their other daughter was a waiter. Uh, the dad, he was in the back. He was cooking. Uh, we loved to go there. The food was unbelievable. It also helped that he loved my daughter. He, the owner just thought my daughter was the cutest thing, and, and she was cute. And, and so we always got, she always got free dessert. I say we because what I taught my daughter was we share dessert. So he'd bring her out a piece of cheesecake, and I'd sit next to my daughter and say, hey, sweetie. Daddy likes cheesecake. And it was a great place to eat. But a few times we ate there when the owner wasn't there. Their family might take a vacation, and so there'd be a little bit different cook, and 
different waiters and different waitresses. And you know what the truth was? The experience wasn't the same. Not just because I didn't get free dessert, but the food wasn't as good. The service, not as sharp. Man, I remember their son. He was a phenomenal waiter. He'd walk up. We might have 10 or 12 people at a table. He'd never whip out a, a pen or a paper. He'd take our orders, and it'd be perfect every time. But it wasn't as good when the owner was gone. We've all experienced that. But it's required of a steward that a man be found faithful. We are God's ambassadors. We are God's servants. And we need to be faithful. It's not about our fame. It's not about what we can accomplish. It's about serving God. And so Ananias was used by the Lord. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 20, Paul wrote this as well to Timothy, his son in the ministry, when he said, but in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. Our job is to cleanse ourselves. Our job is to be available for God's use. But it is up to God how we are used. We need to be tools of him, but it's up to him how he uses us. At my house, I have a shop. And in that shop, I've got as many tools as I can afford. And a few more. I love tools. I, I don't, I don't, I'm not saying that I know how to use them or that I produce great things with them, but man, I, I, I just enjoy, I like having tools. And I remember when I was growing up and, and I would be working on things with my father and, and we had several discussions about the right tool for the right job. Man, let me tell you what you didn't do. You didn't grab a ratchet and smack something and use it as a hammer. I learned that lesson as a kid. My dad gave me great insight. You know what he said? That's not a hammer. I knew that, but what he was telling me is don't use it as a hammer. When you're working on a project, when you're trying to do something and you have just the right tool, it fits perfect. But here's the thing. We don't get to pick how God uses us. God has a plan for us. And we might think, well, you know, I want to be used in a way that that everybody can see, but that may, be, that may not be what God has for us. God did not call Ananias to write two-thirds of the New Testament. God did not call Ananias to travel around the known world and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
God didn't give to Ananias this Macedonian call where he would go over and he would preach to the Gentiles. He used Paul to do all of those things. You know what he did? You know what he called Ananias to do? Restore Paul's sight and baptize him. We each have a part to play. And so because of that, none of us should diminish either our own part or the part of another. Not only that, but we need to make sure we're not afraid to obey God. Man, one of the things that I appreciate about this passage is it shows the hesitancy of Ananias. Ananias is praying. God speaks to him in a vision. Ananias. He's like, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. And then he says, I want you to go to Straight Street. I want you to go to Judas's house. There's a guy there named Saul. And Ananias goes, ooh. I've heard of Saul from many people. His persecution is legendary, and I know he's coming here with authority. But God said, this is, I've got a plan, and this is what I want you to do. And Ananias went, and he did it. Doesn't mean that he didn't have some fear about that. It doesn't mean that he didn't have some hesitancy, but God was working in a miraculous way. And God is always at work even when we don't understand what he's doing. Even when we don't really get it. Romans chapter 8 and verse 28, well-known passage of Scripture, right? We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. We love that, don't we? I mean, that's a good verse. That's a verse that you like, you know, make art out of, or if you're prone to get a tattoo, that's a good one, right? All things work together for good. You know what verse 26 is talking about of Romans chapter 8? It's talking about our weakness. You know what verse 27 talks about? It talks about when we are in such agony that we can't even voice a prayer to God, that God just takes our 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 groanings. And so verse 26 and 27 are talking about us being in the deepest of despair. And in that context, he writes verse 28, all things work together for good. He's not talking about a bunch of good things working together. He's talking about a bunch of tough things working together. See, one of the miracles of the conversion of Saul was how big of an enemy he had been to the followers of Jesus. In other words, the, the conversion of Saul was significant because the persecution that he had led was significant. Are you with me? And from our perspective, that's, that's amazing, isn't it? We're like, oh, this is great. But probably still a little tough to swallow for those who were persecuted. 
for those who were beaten, for those who spent time in jail. But all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. See, I think sometimes we let our fear and our lack of understanding be a barrier to our faith in God. Because we want to follow God and we want to believe him, but we also want him to kind of let us in on exactly what he's doing. But the Bible says that we're to walk by faith, not by sight. And to walk by sight means we see exactly what's happening. But to walk by faith can be a little more difficult. My wife and I were uh, watching TV the other night, and uh, we like to watch TV. Uh, we like to watch things that are, you know, streaming or recorded so we can fast forward through the commercials if there is commercials. That's, that's the way I prefer to see commercials, really disjointed and fast, right? But the other night, I stopped and I rewound. And I said, honey, come in. Check out this commercial. It's a commercial for GMC and their new pickup. I thought my wife would be interested in this. I thought she would really want to. Christmas is coming up. I don't know what she has planned. But I just wanted to share with her, you know, what I'm interested in. But it shows a guy, and he's driving in a new GMC pickup truck, and he pushes some buttons on the wheel, and then he takes his hands off the wheel. And it's at cruise control. And I already, some of you went, ooh, I don't trust that. I'm not saying you should or shouldn't trust that. But it is something that when we see, some of us go, ooh, I don't know about that. I don't know if I want to be rolling down the highway at 65 miles an hour and my hand not on the wheel. That seems a little scary. I remember the first time I used good old-fashioned cruise control. And then you take your feet off of the pedals and then your car accelerates anyway. I hit the brake. I was like, whoa, I don't know. What, what's he? It was a he. What's he thinking in there? But hands and feet off the controls is kind of what God calls us to do sometimes, isn't it? To walk by faith. Even when we don't fully understand what God is doing. Even when we may have a little bit of hesitancy or fear. God doesn't want us to operate in fear, but he does want us to operate in faith. Hebrews chapter 11, verse number 6 says this, But without faith, it is impossible to please him. Who's him? God. Do you realize we cannot go through life and please God if we don't exercise faith? Faith, 
Think about that for a moment. To please God, we've got to walk in faith. There's got to be some times when our hands and our feet are off the controls and we're trusting in him, even if we don't understand where we're going. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Here's the other thing. Don't you want to be rewarded by God? I do. I'm not just a monetary reward, but I mean, I want God's blessing on my life. I want God's blessing on my marriage and on my family. I want God's blessing on my ministry. I want God to to be pleased with me. But I have to believe that God is and that that God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And I know that to please him, I have to trust in him. I have to exercise faith. And so God wants us to operate in faith, not in fear. Paul would say to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1, God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and love and of a sound mind. And so we see that we shouldn't be afraid to obey God. Not only that, but I see from this passage that God's works are always balanced. We read this passage last week, but in Acts chapter 9, verses 3 and 4, it says, as he, talking about Saul, journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell on the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Listen, if you were going to make a movie about this, this story, this is the scene, right? I mean, he's on the road to Damascus. The light shines. It knocks him to the ground. Now, we don't know, was he walking and it just knocked him off his feet? Was he riding some kind of an animal and it threw him to the ground? We don't know that, but what we do know is this guy ends up on the dirt. And, and this, this bright light is surrounding him and it literally blinds him. And this voice from heaven calls out, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And everything that this guy believed is turned upside down. This is a big scene. Less big, less dramatic, but no less important is verse 17. When Ananias went his way and entered the house and laid his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you came has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. See, God's works are balanced. And sometimes we think that God only works in these big, dramatic ways. And God does work in those ways. Listen, God works in in church services and God changes lives and does big things. But you know what God also does? God also works in 
small conversations. God works in heartfelt hugs and silent prayers. And God worked in this one man coming to this house and receiving Saul as his brother in Christ. Because it was there that Saul received the Holy Spirit. It was there that his sight was restored. It was there that his conversion was confirmed and that he was baptized. God was at work as much in that house on a street called Straight as he was in a bright light on the road to Damascus. And sometimes God works in these big, dramatic ways, and it's great if we can be a part of that. I think in my own ministry, and I remember, you know, this today, right? We're going to have this afternoon, we're going to have trunk or treat. And I'm praying we'll have three or 400 kids come through and get candy. We've got about 8,000 pieces of candy. That's after the couple hundred pieces that I ate. So not really. I didn't count. Counted how many we had left over. But I remember as a youth pastor, we had some circumstances kind of come together. And we, we had built a building for our teens and we opened that building and God brought some dramatic things together. And we, we were able to go in some high schools and do some rallies and we had these guys on the back lot of our church jumping motorcycles and we had about 1,300 teenagers come together. It was the biggest thing that I'd ever been a part of as a youth pastor. We had over 300 kids that day make a profession of faith. That was amazing. I also think about the night I took a kid home after youth group. How he sat in my truck on this dark country road outside of his house. He was in 10th grade. And I talked to him about his need for Jesus. And right there in the cab of my truck, we knelt and prayed. And that was no less significant than the big event. Today, that young man's working in a church and finishing his seminary degree. God's using him in a powerful way. And it doesn't, we don't always understand or know where God wants to use us, but it doesn't have to be a big bright light or some giant stage. It can be in what we might view as a small way, but not when God's in it. Finally, this morning, I want us to take this lesson. Never underestimate one sinner saved. The Lord said in verse 15, go, Ananias. You need to go, for he, Saul, is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles, kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. The, the Lord said to 
Ananias, listen, I have big plans for Saul. I've got big plans for him. He's going to speak before kings. He's going to proclaim the good news to Gentiles as well as Jews. He's going to suffer. Ananias probably didn't fully understand. You know, Peter was still in Jerusalem at this time, and he was still preaching, and hundreds and thousands were coming to the cause of Christ. Philip the evangelist was, was in uh, uh, the Samaria, Samaria at that time, having a great harvest there, but God picked Ananias to go and minister to Saul. See, God is a personal God. And he has a plan. You, you may not understand the importance or the significance of it, the significance of it, but God is working. Jesus said this about, about his father. He said, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And then Jesus said this, are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. But the very hairs on your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are more valuable than many sparrows. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. Jesus said this. He said, God knows the number of the hairs on your head. Now, for some of you, that's a little easier than others. But God knows us. And he says, there's not a sparrow that falls to the ground, but that our father doesn't see. We've got a bunch of trees on the back of the property here, and especially, at least as I see it, as you look north, I've seen it a couple of times, but these trees over here, and then even on the property almost to Alameda, at different times of the year, I'll come out of the church building and I'll see these just really swarms of birds. You've probably seen them before. And they're flying about and, and the pattern and the, I mean, it just, it's almost like bugs, but they're birds in there and they're just flying about. It's amazing to watch. Man, it's hard for me to even keep my eye on an individual bird. There's not a sparrow that falls to the ground that the Lord doesn't know. How much more does he know you? God knows every hair on your head. He understands your weaknesses and your failures, and he loves you anyway. God is a big and a majestic God, but he is a personal God. He knows you. He has a plan for you. And he had a plan for a guy named Ananias. And 
think about what an amazing plan it was. Insignificant in the whole canon of Scripture, maybe. But here was Ananias living in a town of Damascus. Waiting, knowing that persecution was coming. But it didn't come. Not right then and not in the form that he thought in the man, this man named Saul. Rather, God interceded. And while Ananias had heard the news of the persecution of Saul, he got the news directly from God that Saul had been converted. And we don't know any more about what Ananias does, but I imagine Ananias had something to say to the church at Damascus, don't you think? I mean, do you think the next time he got together with fellow believers and they were like, hey, Ananias, what's up? I doubt he went, nothing. How's it going? Fine. No, he's probably like, listen, you know that guy Saul? We've all heard about him. You know all the persecution that took place in Jerusalem. You know how he was coming here. He's in Damascus. And people said, should we be scared? And, and Ananias is like, no, we shouldn't. You know why? He's a believer in Jesus now. I imagine there were some people that were like, uh, are you sure, Ananias? Do you have the right Saul? Ananias would say, I was praying and God spoke to me. Man, I saw, I walked in and Saul was blind, but when I left, he could see. When I walked in, he, when I was there, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. I baptized him myself. God has a plan. And God has a plan for you. I mentioned this verse before, but I wanted to read it as we begin to close this morning. Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I just want to encourage you this morning. God has a plan for you. What do you need to do to respond to that plan? For some of you, maybe God is calling you to take a step of faith. Maybe it's for the very first time to put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. Romans chapter 10 and verse 13 says, For to whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And today, maybe that is the step of faith that you need to take. For some of you, maybe you need to take a step of faith of obedience in some other way. Maybe God's calling you to get involved in a ministry or, or maybe God's calling you to join this church or maybe God's calling you to, to just be a witness to, to your neighbor or, or to finally talk to your coworker. Uh, when he says, what did you do this weekend? You say, man, I went to church and try to begin a spiritual conversation with him. I don't know what God is calling you to do, but I know that God has a plan for you. And he is looking for people who will exercise 
their faith. Because he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Ananias followed what God asked him to do. And while he may not be the most famous person, God used him in an amazing way. And God desires to use you in the same way. Let's pray this morning. Dear God, Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. Thank you for your word, God, that gives to us stories like this man, Ananias. One who, despite some hesitancy, was faithful to follow after you. One who saw the importance of what you were calling him to do, even if he didn't understand all of it. God, help us to follow in that example. Lord, if there's somebody here today that does not know you as Savior, God, I pray that today would be their day of salvation, that they would seek out my or maybe whomever they came with and just, uh, be, just begin a conversation about what it means to be a follower of you. Lord, give us the courage to take the step of faith that you're calling us to. For some, maybe it's just to remain faithful as a parent, to remain faithful in their marriage, to remain faithful as a follower of you. God, whatever you have called us to do, help us to be encouraged by the example of Ananias today. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.